Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining this webinar held by xapa.org. Uh, we are delighted to uh, welcome you with us and uh, get a chance to uh, engage with Xapa on stakeholder engagement and human rights. I will start with uh, short online meeting instructions. So we are on the same page about our best to make the most of this webinar today. Um, we are using Zoom and uh, you are muted by default. Uh, it's basically just a way to ensure high quality uh, for everyone to take part in the, in the discussion and, 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 can, and listen. Uh, the options, of course, to engage uh, through a chat that is open. Um, there is no need to use the camera, uh, so just a video. Um, the reason being that uh, I think it's a good way to ensure that there is a good bandwidth for you and for your experience as much as a good way to uh, maximize uh, the carbon footprint of this webinar. Uh, you are very welcome to invite uh, colleagues, um, people you think uh, could find this uh, content interesting. And this is recorded uh, and will be uploaded on our website um, afterward. Uh, so um, you can make sure to share uh, the content or have access to the presentation after the webinar as well. On our website and the section is actually uh, hosted in the publication section of our website. My name is Farid Badash. I uh, am a CEO of uh, our organization uh, uh, XAPA.org which I can uh, briefly introduce to all of you with a focus on some of our activities to lead local stakeholder engagement on human rights. Um, so in short term, I will make a brief introduction so you get a sense of the kind of experience and uh, capacity we have. Um, so I think it's always good to have a good understanding of the perspective of uh, people sharing their views. And then we'll discuss about uh, local stakeholder engagement, uh, the context of uh, growing regulation and good practices um, for uh, companies and investors um, related to respect, uh, to respecting human rights. Um, and then uh, we'll be very happy to share some tips and you have to closely listen um, to this discussion because I will share also experience and examples um, that are not necessarily across uh, those slides. The reason being that the topic is always pretty sensitive so I think uh, it's always better to uh, just uh, keep it light so yourself you feel comfortable um, to, um, to engage and share information. It's a principle for us, human rights being a sensitive topic. We know that we've engaged closely uh, with respect confidentiality of specific um, uh, program or, or people. So XAPA, XAPA.org is organized as a mission-driven organization. Uh, we, XAPA means discernment, wisdom, um, soundness, reasonableness. Uh, we were uh, funded uh, in uh, 2019. Um, uh, uh, being an organization that is geared to support investors and private sector to accelerate their contribution to global goals. Um, and how we do this, we do this with very experienced people. Uh, we lead our um, advisory activities. Uh, we have a good sense on how sustainability has been um, moving for the past 20, 25 years. And we want to build on that to lead uh, close reviews of strategic support for investors and um, companies to define more disruptive, transformative approaches uh, for companies to, to significantly accelerate transformation and contribution to the big environmental and social issues of our world. And of course, human rights is no doubt one of those big issues in the world 
uh, experiencing growing inequalities, uh, a growing infringement of human rights, and being increasingly volatile. We also complement our uh, work on human rights, on, 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 on consulting with investment capacity. We design and we lead in, uh, impact investment programs, um, enabling to federate investors um, to accelerate the funding that can support and fast track um, transformation of supply chains, uh, operations, and that's something we do across uh, the global goal agendas. Um, and we have programs on carbon, we have programs uh, on um, that in, in, improve access to human rights, typically through technical training, uh, improving the access to decent work and managing, for example, gender issues. And we also lead some advocacy work as a .org organization, which I believe it's important to share our experience, um, inspire others, and make sure that uh, we are as open source as we can. So you uh, taking part in this conversation today, other people, your colleagues, um, uh, peer, peer people you might know, might use these resources. Um, so, you know, they have some ideas about how to move forward and as this, this is part of our mission, accelerate transformation and contribution to global goals. We do advocacy work through um, uh, especially uh, our uh, uh, blog section. Uh, we produce on a regular basis a um, couple of articles uh, and briefing papers which are accessible on our website. Um, we actually are also pretty active on uh, social media to XAPA.org for our Twitter account, for example, and we have a LinkedIn account as well. Um, we have, we are, we are headquartered in Paris, France, and we operate with a network of uh, a little bit more than 150 local partners um, uh, who provide a combination of expertise and or local contextual understanding across our activities and programs. And when it comes typically to human rights, that's super important, super critical, because that's how we combine expertise needed to ensure that we have the best understanding we can um, of the local context, as much as of the business and the operations we want to address. So we combine legal, agronomist, development people, for example, safety experts, um, and we do this with people who basically are also uh, headquartered or located across a good number of geographies. This is a review of our consulting activities, which I mentioned, and this is an example of our investing activities, pretty related to how we want to accelerate contribution of investors and companies to uh, the global goals. And very closely related to many human rights issues that will be part of the rest of our presentation today. Uh, typically, we have smaller farmers across uh, agricultural commodities uh, who often suffer from very hard uh, working conditions, poor um, wages, um, and multiple other issues uh, which they can face. And the lack access to technical training, ensuring that they can improve their practices, and we are designing some programs which generate a return so that attracts um, some uh, investors and, and companies um, and generate, and that's the most important impact because that uh, the dissemination is pretty high and that enables a number of farmers to improve their practices and really improve their lives. Uh, so that's typically the kind of program that um, we believe is part of the responses which can be designed to improve human rights of people across uh, multiple geographies in the world. 
Let's move on for the core of our uh, presentation, local stakeholder engagement and human rights. Um, as a starting point, to make sure that we're all on the same page, uh, the past decades has been a decade when uh, the guiding principles on business and human rights enacted back in 2011 uh, have clearly built, and this is something we have experienced ourselves directly in our team, a much more constructive uh, approach and framework uh, to manage human rights across businesses and investment decisions. Uh, ensuring that there is greater clarity in the role that is expected to be played by government and state businesses as much as the relevant um, institutions responsible to remedy. Um, this is the first step, but as you can see, if you uh, browse our um, blog section on our website at sapa.org, we'll see that we've published multiple articles about um, business and human rights, which include um, notably some related to the development of legally binding instruments to regulate the activities of companies. And that's very important because the world has definitely changed um, over the past decade. And now, because there have been a lot of local initiatives across multiple markets, just limit to the G20 economies, clearly there have been a lot of initiatives to increase regulation of human rights um, as an example. But the world has also changed um, and expectations of, of stakeholders have evolved. Um, so it is time now to explore those, these getting principled minus in human rights in a context now in 2020, which clearly has a strong bearing on the way um, we can look at local stakeholder engagement and human rights. Three important themes uh, we believe are important to flag at that stage of this presentation. First, tax evasion. It is very clear that for many people within organizations, within companies, the concept of tax optimization is something good. You optimize taxes, and that's basically good to ensure that you maximize revenues of your companies and or your of or the return of, of some of the investment. This is changing increasingly in context of growing inequalities, uh, there is a clear expectation to see a fair uh, allocation of taxes across um, markets, and notably where operations are activated and where uh, companies or investments are basically making the value and the money. That might uh, impact manufacturing sites for factories, and that might impact for digital businesses, of course, markets where uh, digital solutions are generating um, revenue. This is a very sensitive topic, but clearly something that is closely connected because tax is a tool which enables local markets to improve uh, infrastructure, improve uh, lives of local people, uh, provide better access to education, for example. So there's a close connection between tax and, and uh, access of human rights and the capacity of local governments to um, protect human rights of people. A second big issue, and of course, the current context where there is growing mistrust in, uh, in multilateral organizations and globalization, the, the return on globalization for people, uh, is related to um, bilateral investment treaties. Uh, some using, for example, investor state dispute settlement uh, principles, 
generate a system where there is a cascade of legal entities, making it very difficult to understand which entity is accountable for what human rights abuse. That means in practice that you can, you can have a business or an operation, let's say in Malaysia, and with a legal entity in Malaysia, and because there is a bilateral uh, investment treaty between Malaysia and whatever G20 country, let's say United Kingdom, uh, they, they get the, the treaty might make it very, very difficult uh, for local people in Malaysia to uh, put in trial uh, for human rights abuses, uh, the actual entities which has responsibility. This is for many stakeholders a big problem and a big challenge because that means that how do you want to expect uh, organizations to be held responsible if the legal entities cannot be held accountable? Um, I would actually look at that from another perspective. If you are yourself part of a company making commitments um, to be respectful of ethics, uh, how can you uh, ensure and apply those commitments if at the end of the day there is no avenue for employees and people working for your company, your joint ventures, your branches, um, to basically be held legally accountable. Last and very important theme that actually relates to the current context on how human rights are framing um, relationship and dynamics at local level, the, data, the concept of data and data collection, usage and sharing. Uh, everyone knows that we are experiencing deep um, digital transformations. And this implies that a lot of businesses are moving very fast and there are a lot of data collected. The challenge comes to the moment when those data can be shared in the way they're collected or hosted, for example, between peer companies or across the value chain between a client company and a business partner. And then comes the question first of which entity again is responsible for what in terms of protection? and usage of those data. And second, what ignorance people have of using data uh, that might basically be misused. Uh, there have been a lot of examples recently where, for example, some data enabling smart building to uh, use energy uh, based on how people are using the building could actually be also used to track and monitor the activity of people, which is some rights of, of, of people, depending actually on how you want to use that information. So as we can see now in 2020, we are clearly um, in uh, a very changing world where businesses and investors have to face primarily six, and I will start with three, uh, big uh, changes uh, which are really impacting their operation. And every company, every investor has to look closely at the three elements that I'm going to share now. First, um, the concept of mandatory transparency and human rights due diligence. That might apply across operations, joint ventures, supply chain, and I should even say client and customers. There's been a lot of uh, initiatives. Um, I would actually mention the, the Human Trafficking Act in California and the US as an example, which is actually not displayed on the screen, but which shows that it's clearly not something that is specifically and uniquely a, a European thing or whatever. Instead, it's been much more global than that. And at the end of the day, the point has been that there have been multiple uh, initiatives coming from very different markets, uh, which are in common to expect 
companies, investors, to have a good sense of human rights that they might infringe across their activities, uh, and define an action plan to mitigate those risks. Then, of course, many of those initiatives are slightly different in content. The UK's Modern Slavery Act focuses on modern slavery and on the supply chain. Um, as an example, uh, the France's duty of vigilance law um, is more interested in a broader understanding of human rights, environmental impact, and safety issues that might apply across supply chain. Um, so the, the themes or the topics which are covered by each of these initiatives can be different. And at the end of the day, the conclusion is the following. Uh, between today and let's say up to 2025, there is growing complexity in the space here, and companies, investors, will increasingly have to be able to demonstrate their capacity to lead a holistic understanding of how human rights, with the International Bill of Rights being the starting point, so it's close to 100 potential rights, uh, might in, be impacted positively or negatively, and of course, the negative aspect is the, the key for those discussions across their operations, no matter whether we're talking about how the solutions might be misused by users and customers or clients, what about their operations and how they are manufacturing, producing their products and services and or procuring and sourcing activities, and this across their market. This is extremely complex and because we have been uh, responsible for multiple programs in that space, we know very well what we're talking about. This requires a lot of methodology and those holistic reviews are fairly complex, but extremely important for companies because this is how they can really navigate across this growing number of local initiatives. And most importantly, and I will close with this, understanding human rights is important. Building an action plan to mitigate risks is important in good faith, but there are two additional and complementary elements that are very important for companies to be serious, trusted, and have a, a, good, a, a good approach to human rights. First, what matters, if we get back to the uh, guiding principle of business and human rights, is the capacity to demonstrate impact. It is great to map issues. It is great to have an action plan. It is much more important to demonstrate ideally in close coordination or connection with those whose rights might be impacted to show how measures have been able to uh, mitigate actual risks from the perspectives of potential right holders. And here I'm introducing the concept, the concept of right holders, meaning the people, whether we're talking about employees, about contractors, about people living uh, in communities that are based across or near uh, factories, we're talking about right holders in that space. And from their perspective, how rights, how their rights have been um, better managed or potential human rights abuses have been mitigated. That's very one. Two, uh, another aspect, the fact that all of these mappings might make sense but needs to be refreshed on a regular basis because the context might change. For example, let's think about a factory which is built in a rural area. And a couple of years later, because there is growing urbanization in the area, well, the context is very different. And the way uh, human rights might be approached to understand the potential risks that might apply for uh, rural communities um, might completely change if it's much more populated and there are much more different businesses um, that are growing 
just next to the factory. That's an example. Another contextual limit that might change and might clearly require to update on a regular basis the mapping of the potential human rights at risk, which is the fact that technologies are changing and the fact that because we're in the middle of deep digital transformations, um, it is very clear that uh, some rights might in, in infringement might change over time simply because the processes are changing. Let's move to a second area that is extremely uh, sensitive and of growing importance for businesses and investors. And I would frame it um, as a way to be actually smarter, to really work hard and understand really the issues uh, that might be uh, for companies and investors. I have used the concept of right orders just on my previous slide. And I said just in simple terms that the, the right order might be an employee, a contractor, um, someone living in a community close to a factory. This is good, but in many cases, this is not enough. The key question in those uh, people whose rights are particularly at risk are what we might call the vulnerable segments. And you might understand vulnerable segments the way you want. It might be driven by status X. It might be driven by uh, local context. Uh, there are multiple ways to segment and uh, drill down uh, to write all the segments and understand which vulnerable segment might basically be part of those. Um, here you have a few examples. When I want to talk about migrant workers, one thing is to talk about employees. And for example, workers, let's say, in a plantation and in a factory. Subsegment of those might be the migrant workers. These people who basically don't necessarily understand the local language, don't necessarily know their rights, uh, and just because of those two things, are likely to be more vulnerable. But look at that from a gender perspective. And typically, let's imagine a workforce where uh, two thirds are male, one third are female workers. Um, there are many reasons to believe that it's, there is likelihood. But for, uh, from a gender perspective, we can understand some of the rights um, that might be at stake, particularly for women, that, which might just not be experienced by men. Uh, meaning that uh, as a consequence, if you really want to be serious about human rights uh, for those um, segments, addressing what really matters from a gender perspective might be slightly different or might require a little bit um, more understanding of the actual issue than just a broad understanding of what might be at stake for workers in, in a broader sense. And we can continue on and on. Uh, if we look about communities, we could say that in simple terms, we could say that around a, let's say, a factory or a plantation, we have communities, sure. But then, in a classical manner, a factory director, for example, might engage on a regular basis with local municipality needs. Um, a mayor, um, key people from the, uh, the local environment, that's fine, a classic. Uh, in stakeholder engagement, but that's not enough when it comes to human rights. Um, you can have communities uh, which basically never vote, extremely poor, they never engage with local municipalities. So if your stakeholders, in a broad sense, are generally to engage on a regular basis with municipalities, you don't have a sense on really what's going on with those vulnerable group of people uh, living next door to your site. So we can continue on and on, but long story short, the more, um, uh, companies and investors having a deeper understanding of priority segments of renewable segments, the more they can be smart to really define an inclusive approach addressing human rights. Last 
area of growing importance on uh, managing human rights at local level, environment. There is and there will be growing interconnections between human rights and environmental business impacts. Uh, this, we're talking about human rights. So we're talking about a universe of rights, meaning that we're talking about a universe of potential um, risks of compliance and of companies or people being put on trial by other people. When it comes to environmental protection, it's a little bit different. However, at the nexus of those two concepts, we can clearly see how, for example, growing water scarcity in some areas and competition between um, business activities and community needs uh, will, and are actually already, but will increasingly uh, generate more conflicts, um, judiciary conflicts between communities and business operations. And just to illustrate that with a very concrete example that at the top of my mind as we speak, I've been working with an extractive site uh, which used to employ a lot of local people. Uh, so this, the extractive site was basically a big mine, but that big mine was able to generate a lot of local uh, value for people, jobs, taxes. And because of all of that, many of the grievances which were generated by that site, although at the end of the day, that extractive site was not that bad, but anyway, uh, the pollutions or environmental impacts of the site were sort of accepted by people because they were jobs. Uh, and very recently, over the recent years, this company had to invest massively in automation. And the automation meant that this transformation of processes have reduced or decreased significantly the number of jobs on the one hand and changed the workforce on the other hand, meaning that for the extractive side, first local people did not necessarily have as much to jobs that they had before, but also the side required to hire people uh, who had to come from further because they had the right skills to use the digital solutions deployed within the extractive site. The implication of this has been the following. The kind of balance which people accepted in terms of access to jobs and environmental impacts uh, was just not uh, accepted any longer. And suddenly, this extractive site had to face multiple um, judiciary issues um, with local communities asking us to have better access to water, uh, biodiversity protection, artificial land. Um, so the local context completely changed. And this is just a very um, kind of random example I can share among many others, which shows how suddenly, as you are changing the social contract where there are operations, this might have huge impacts on um, the relationship uh, that can be expected with local communities. Let's move on to three areas where, uh, when it comes notably to uh, local engagement with stakeholders, businesses, corporations, and investors have a critical role to play to cooperate with states. So, of course, I would start with one um, stating the obvious. Uh, that might depend on the relationship between the state itself and its capacity to actually uh, protect human rights. And in case where business has to operate in fragile states, for example, what I am going to say might be slightly different and business might have a more responsibility to leverage 
its influence as part of the guiding principles on business and human rights to ensure that over time, states can do a better job to protect human rights. So there might be a gray area between cooperation and influence. But at the end of the day, there are three areas where this is really important. Protection of whistleblower is one. This is all about this concept of defining and having to uh, principle respect human rights across uh, companies and providing grievance mechanism accesses for people to flag issues. And the case of whistleblowers, for example, employees, at the end of the day, the question is what's the role of business uh, to uh, protect, um, process, and provide remedy of what uh, whistleblowers might want to express in terms of uh, issues, very serious concerns that they might have related to human rights violations uh, impacting workers and or other right holders um, in the local community. Uh, if the state does not uh, provide the right framework, it is a responsibility for local businesses to do so. And I would change the perspective on that. It's not just about uh, ethics. It's actually also about protecting assets. Protecting assets because in environments which are uh, heavily corrupted, for example, you can make sure that all financial numbers are wrong. And simply because if it's corrupted, that means that all assumptions you make when it comes to numbers are basically based on fake reality. And if a whistleblower is able to identify strong ethical issues that might generate corrupted practices, uh, it's important to take that into, into account because that's a way to fundamentally protect assets. The contrary is wrong. The cost of not proactively protecting whistleblower and ensuring good uh, ethical practices on the ground uh, is much higher uh, later on when incidents are first um, widespread, uh, discovered, and that the cost is significantly higher. A second area of close cooperation can come with land development and free prior and informed consent. I would take an example to explain this because this. This concept is all too often uh, uh, defined from a regulatory perspective exclusively for what are called native or, and, or indigenous people, depending on the countries. For example, in Malaysia, we might talk about the Oring Asli people. And I will stop with Malaysia today. I've talked a lot about it. Um, but then, for example, in Canada, uh, we might um, have uh, indigenous people defined as being part of the First Nations of Canada. Now, in the Philippines, there is a different um, definition. So, FPIC is coming from that perspective, how to protect and respect those vulnerable people who have a status in country. But it is, very, it is time to expand that concept, clearly, way beyond, to communities in a broader sense, having a living, having a, a, a economic activity in area which are impacted by additional or new investments. It could be the development of an infrastructure. It could be the uh, establishing of a new factory or of an economic zone, whatever. This impacts local people. People might think it impacts positively, creating jobs, maybe, but it also have a negative impact. Let's assume that some people are living from ecotourism, for example. Well, having a large industrial site next door is not good for ecotourism in general terms. Um, and so this concept is closely related to the question of public consultation and how authorities are able to lead 
transparent, professional, public consultations which are inclusive of the interests of local people. And when those local authorities are unable to do so, businesses and investors are in big trouble because they're squeezed right in the middle of two things. And I've experienced that many times as much as many people working with me. Uh, these situations where on the one hand, you are a company or an investor and you engage with government or authorities to have access to a contract. Um, let's take the example of building an infrastructure. Um, great, happy, you win the project. And then when you arrive on the ground, the truth is basically that people are unaware. Uh, the project is controversial. People don't want to hear of it. And you're squeezed in the middle of those two things. You have penalties because you need to deliver on time based on what you've committed with the government. And on the other hand, you have to manage the local social complexity. And that, that can be really, really challenging. So these cooperation between states or authorities in Robertson and businesses is critical because beyond the concept of free prior and informed consent and the process of leading good, transparent, professional public consultation comes the question of how, as a company and or an investor, you can expect to know, to have a good sense on the context where you're investing. So you make the right assumption. So the state or the government, which has the interest to attract foreign investors, um, is able to provide a good, um, safe, trusted investing environment. And so we can frame it this way. Cooperation in that space is a good avenue, uh, on the one hand, to ensure that a process to develop new infrastructures or new development in local areas is inclusive of local communities and people, one. And at the same time, it is in the interest of uh, investors and businesses to get it right in close cooperation with a state not to be critical about the fact that they want to manage uh, urban planning the way they want, but at least to ensure that they do that in a way that is respectful of people and trusted for um, a business decision makers. Last point um, about area of cooperation. Uh, there is, this is calling for much more internal alignment within corporations as much as within um, financial community. Uh, some people within your own corporations, for example, will always ask for bilateral trade agreements, um, calling for, as I said a little bit earlier, tax evasion or exceptions on the rules simply because that's a way to increase uh, uh, trade between two markets. Well, that's not enough. Today, being responsible and at the same time, and very related to the previous point, building trusted environment for investment decisions implies to ensure that there is a continuity of responsibility and accountability, a continuity of tax allocation across the trade relationship between, for example, two countries. The more um, business and the financial communities can influence uh, negotiations of bilateral trade agreements to be respectful of human rights and to ensure that there is no extraterritoriality, um, the more businesses and financial communities are building trust with local stakeholders, one, and framing a trusted environment to invest in themselves.
Now let's move on to um, actual little cuisine um, <laughs> that can connect this context and, and elements of uh, to bear in mind with local stakeholder engagement activities. Let me pause here one minute to explain a little um, elements which are um, conceptual but very important to talk about human rights. We're talking here in this document about stakeholder just to pick things in very simple terms. But as I've said a little bit earlier, uh, beyond the concept of stakeholders, we can split stakeholders when it comes to human rights into two big categories. The right holders on the one hand and the duty bearers on the other hand. The right holders are anyone, you, me, whose right might be impacted, infringed by an investment decision and business and or business operation. Uh, we mentioned vulnerable segments of those, but in a broad sense, let's say that that can be an employee, a contractor, um, someone living in a community. On the other hand, uh, you have the right, the, the duty bearers, and the duty bearers might be all those whose activity might infringe human rights. And of course, I'm talking a lot about investors and businesses because these are the priority people we, we engage in. We want this conversation to be all about. But of course, authorities and local governments, for example, those responsible for urban planning, clearly have some responsibilities as well. And the challenge, of course, is the dilution of responsibilities across multiple duty bearers, which makes, in some cases, accountability difficult. If I take my example of um, public consultation, at the end of the day, if the authority is responsible for a good public consultation, um, and this is, of course, not the case in many instances, then the business has the responsibility to take part in the management of the consequences of poor public consultation. And at the end of the day, it's part of the duty bearers, no matter what, and whether the company wants or not, simply because there might be some community just in front of the factory uh, willing to really have solutions. And so the company might just be at the forefront. So what I want to say here about local stakeholder engagement activities is, in simple terms, two things. First, there are classics of stakeholder engagement that can apply to human rights in a broad sense. Mapping stakeholders is good. Ensuring continuity in stakeholder engagement and the principles which can base stakeholder engagement in general terms makes sense. And today we're not here to talk about stakeholder engagement itself. We're here to talk about human rights. What will make the, the stakeholder engagement on human rights more specific are basically two things that goes beyond. First, and I slightly talked about that a little bit earlier, um, when I mentioned the concept of vulnerable segments, it's all about being creative in the mapping of stakeholders to go beyond the usual suspects. Of course, companies, or a factory, let's say, or a plantation, has ongoing relations with local authorities and municipalities. This is fine. But when we want to engage on, 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 on human rights, um, it is important to build connections with vulnerable segments. And sometimes some of the poorest people in the community who don't vote, who never engage with local municipalities. Municipalities, in some cases, have no clue about those people. They don't know. They neglect those people. That's the reality on the ground. So what makes human rights specific is this creativeness to find solutions to engage with those, um, uh, those segments. 
Um, that's one thing that is specific. Another thing, another aspect which is uh, specific to human rights, is basically that it's sensitive. And it's actually, never forget that a lot of the issues we're talking about here, to be very concrete, might be about, we're talking about um, security guards uh, who might infringe rights of local women, sexual harassment, rapes, in some examples, this is very sensitive. And, and we can talk about uh, other examples related to um, water that is polluted and might kill some people next door um, in the community, well, uh, or might generate some handicap of children. Taking, you know, extreme examples, but these are the kind of core elements that might basically frame um, big concerns and big issues when it comes to human rights and local stakeholder engagement. And because human rights is a chapter in general which is sensitive, the principle to drive local engagement is very important. To ensure high confidentiality, to ensure, uh, and you can think of the concept of protection of uh, whistleblowers, to ensure that people feel safe when they're talking and engaging on human rights and they feel comfortable that they can share information. Uh, and it's of course very specific to human rights, uh, whereas in broader stakeholder engagement, in some cases, that's not necessary. Um, what I want to say um, to close those elements, considerations on human rights and uh, local stakeholder engagement, basically, I'm something that we've learned across projects. Proactive engagement is always cheaper than reactive management. Um, it is very difficult uh, when a conflict has been generated uh, by poor um, uh, human rights management uh, to get back to normal. Whereas in many cases, it is much easier uh, to anticipate situations and avoid uh, their occurrence. I can give you an example that has been extremely sensitive and conflictual. On a project, working in Indonesia, which is a, um, mostly a Muslim country. Um, there were a con uh, some work which needed to be completed by a contractor coming from China. Uh, with Chinese worker, there was no guidance, no contractual clause to manage the um, behavior of the Chinese worker in the community. And unfortunately, what happened is basically that at some point, some of the Chinese workers used some sites which basically were attached to the mosque next door um, to do some cleaning. You can imagine um, the disastrous consequences of having uh, uh, foreigners coming uh, as temporary workers uh, to build some constrictions um, with uh, very poor behavior related to the local, uh, uh, basically, uh, uh, musky, terrible. And then the cost afterwards for the local site, managing the situation, horrible, very complicated to manage, to calm down the local community. Whereas at the end of the day, being proactive on that could have been extremely simple. Guidance, um, training, awareness, contractual clauses, that costs nothing. Um, so being proactive in those uh, cases and situations can make a big difference.
these elements, which I'm going to show now, are basically coming from a briefing paper we released on our website uh, on stakeholder engagement and human rights for local activities. And I think we released this briefing paper in November last year. And you can download this briefing paper on our website um, in the publication section at sapa.org. And that briefing paper provides much more um, text and information and guidance. And we decided that for the webinar today, we would extract a few graphs coming out of it. So you can see basically the kind of processes you're in if you want to lead, design a solid approach to manage human rights for local activity. We've simplified a lot of things um, to make it um, digestible. But at the end of the day, with the color code, you can see three big phases. The planning, at this moment when, for example, uh, if you're a company or an investor, you basically fish for information to understand uh, in discussion with local uh, authorities or government what plan they want um, if they're building a construction and you feel that you have the right uh, competencies to invest or basically uh, lead the construction work yourself. So the planning is the moment when you can take part in collecting information to understand the social risk and opportunities related to the local site. Um, there is nothing on the ground. Uh, that's, it's all about the planning and scenarios about you know, how to design the project and what feasibility is possible. How at these early phases, the project might be inclusive or manage potential risks related to the deployment of the project with local activities and local people. This phase is critical. Interestingly, this is a phase where there is time where the cost is very low because at the end of the day, we're talking about a phase where it's all about being creative and understanding what's going on to, um, to define plan. Uh, but in many cases, this is not the phase where many industries or investors think about human rights. De facto, human rights way later at the moment when they're stuck in solutions, industrial solutions uh, already uh, defined, and it's much harder than to mitigate many risks. So that moves to the second phase, implementation. And the implementation phase, and of course for complex projects that we can find in the industrial environment, in energy uh, extractive activities, for example, and we're very familiar with many of those, uh, the jigsaw we're talking about here is pretty complex and simplified with only one pillar that we call implementation, but there might be uh, thousands of people in, involved as much as hundreds of, um, of contractors and suppliers, um, and it, it can be extremely complex to orchestrate the whole industrial implementation and deployment. We know that for sure. Um, uh, and with this, um, it is clear that we look at those um, uh, aspects at the moment when uh, the construction and the development of operations can be a good moment to identify um, opportunities to include stakeholders and really manage very concrete plans uh, to uh, mitigate risk. And the last pillar that is presented here might include the ongoing way to refresh understanding of local context as I said a bit earlier, that local context might change um, uh, in a profound manner. Uh, let's take my example of uh, a rural area uh, transforming into something much more urbanized. 
as an example, as much as technologies and the digitalization of operations, changing workforce and changing multiple implications of human rights in the local context. And a third example might be the downsizing and the closure and the moment when the company is withdrawing from a, um, from a, 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 a local environment, which has also human rights implications. So you can see uh, that um, yeah, they are with um, uh, a multiple uh, situations where it is difficult to um, define one plan. And instead of being just one pl a continuous plan, moving from planning, implementation, and, and evaluation, instead, here we're talking about continuity and adaptation. And human rights requires uh, to ensure that there is continuity and adaptation. Um, to respond to a question that is uh, coming to the chat, uh, if local NGOs are restricted and muzzled across all of these activities, um, there are solutions to be creative uh, and address those. As I mentioned a bit earlier, across the planning, implementation, and, and evaluation phase, for example, for planning, uh, a simple solution in some cases can be to use uh, external or international conferences that are hosted outside the country and to find some solutions to influence for some of those conferences to invite. Because I, I'm getting that example because I, I've used it myself. To invite those and get a chance to talk to them in areas where they feel more comfortable to speak. Social media and some uh, encrypted social media can be uh, another solution to engage conversation with some of those actors. And I want to say that companies Attend and investors tend to be shy when it comes to human rights in most cases simply because they don't think that it's their responsibility to protect or defend NGOs or whatever. But I think this perspective needs to change. As I've tried to mention a couple of times uh, across this webinar, uh, there are business reasons why uh, being respectful of human rights is no more, no less in a way, than being able to build trusted environment for companies to invest and know basically where they're investing. So without necessarily using the human rights language, there are multiple things that uh, investors and companies can do to influence and force uh, governments to include the perspective of those who have a very uh, controversial or different point of view uh, to build trust basically with investors. Um, I will move to um, the, these points that I'm just making right now. What good continuity and ongoing engagement can mean and imply for stakeholders? Um, I've seen situations where companies or investors would send someone knowledgeable from HQ to spend a couple of days on site somewhere. Uh, and, you know, that's fine. That's a way to build alignment within the company or within a community of investors and to help uh, get a sense of the local context and things like that. So that's good. That's fine. But that's clearly not enough. Continuity is all about being able to understand the local context and you build trust with local stakeholders because there is ongoing management. And this ongoing relationship does not come with someone flying from an HQ no matter where, once uh, a year or whatever. That's clearly not enough. Instead, 
there are multiple mechanisms um, which can include the development of a local platform that might be agile to adapt and to refresh basically its participants based on the issues. But that's a way to have a local dialogue that is ongoing. Um, there are ways to build local capacities and there are some companies, I'm aware of examples in the extractive universe or in the tech industry where local management is uh, of, of factories, for example, is, um, is uh, trained um, to lead uh, discussion on the stakeholder engagement. Um, so that can be um, uh, examples uh, to build more local capacities with people who are living on the area. Um, there can be investments made with community liaison officer, people who are trained um, to identify um, uh, local issues and manage those in close discussion with communities all day long, all year long. Um, and I would add two things, the concept of grievance mechanism. And uh, with this concept, we published another briefing paper on grievance mechanisms as much as some articles in our uh, blog section about grievance mechanisms. It's a fascinating topic. At the end of the day, the point is the following, how a worker, a contractor, someone living in a community can flag issues in a way that he is aware, he or she is aware that there is a channel um, that he can be, his life can be safe and that he, uh, he she has confidence um, confidence in the fact that the, the, the issue will be processed. So that's basically the concept of women's mechanism is it to a phone number, an internet access and a mailbox, a phone, um, digital application, whatever. Last and not least, social media activities. We strongly encourage um, to have a close look of um, uh, local social media activities using, it could be Twitter, uh, LinkedIn, uh, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram. There are multiple, even local uh, applications, which are extremely interesting because just the way sometimes some young or whatever influencer make joke about their lives on a day-to-day -day basis in local environment might basically be interesting to understand the implications and the role that the company or site might play in that space. Social media can be a very creative way to maintain an ongoing monitoring of, of potential concerns or issues in uh, local areas. The, I would close uh, this uh, presentation um, with um, a few uh, uh, closing uh, considerations. Uh, we're at a time uh, where this webinar is held uh, at a moment when today we have uh, with India joining the global confinement movement given COVID-19, we have likely something like 2.3 billion of people who are asked to stay home and with huge impact on uh, local activities uh, in multiple uh, regions and environments in the world. Um, and we know, and at SAPA.org, we released earlier this year in January, a report called Towards 2030, which you can download on our publication section as well, which provides a perspective on why and how uh, um, a series of environmental and social um, challenges are going to disrupt fundamentally um, and radically a lot of businesses uh, for the years and the decade to come. 
So the pandemic, uh, uh, the global pandemic uh, accident or crisis that we're living today is the beginning, I would say, of something uh, that, is, that has a certain continuity. Tomorrow, after tomorrow, and in the years to come, there will be other major events that can be industrial crisis. Um, Fukushima was a good example. There will be others. Bioterrorism that could lead to other pandemic crises. Um, climate change that can generate more extreme weather impacts on local environments. So there will be other crises. And uh, COVID-19 is an opportunity to learn um, the implication of what a major crisis can have in the relationship that a local site, an industry, a factory, whatever, related to its employees and local communities, contractors, and so on, uh, can have in the management of major crises. And I would connect that with human rights because human rights is the agenda which can generate a sense of community, a sense of inclusiveness between people. If we are aware, if you are a factory, and as a factory you use human rights and you are very serious with continuity to understand the risk and respect people, that means that at times of crisis, uh, the community and the sense of solidarity that might come will be useful to navigate major and known and major crises. So there is a strong business case to address human rights, not only because, um, as I mentioned at the beginning, there are growing regulations and growing um, uh, movements uh, forcing businesses and investors to look at those human rights issues seriously, just at least from a compliance perspective. But as I said, I think it's also because that's how they build a good business case to protect assets and money. Uh, and now I'm saying that because we'll have more crises, human rights is uh, the avenue to map, engage, build trust um, between uh, people in local environments, local sites, uh, that help uh, to navigate the unknown and navigate the crises which are uh, going to happen again and again for the years to come. I want to uh, thank you very much for your attention, uh, taking part in this webinar today. I hope uh, no matter where you're based, uh, that you enjoyed your coffee, your lunch, or uh, your snack break uh, in the afternoon or your evening uh, with us with this webinar. I took the time to display uh, this closing slide um, to give the contact details um, that can be useful. Um, for follow-up questions, feel free to use contact at xapa.org. Um, it is a very, very human uh, email that is processed by our team. So there are people who can respond to it. We're based in France, and given that we have a pretty strong network of people across the world, we would be very happy to make sure uh, that uh, we can approach and address those issues in the most pertinent manner, combining the best mix of expertise with the, the best mix of contextual understanding. Um, we wish you an excellent um, uh, end of uh, your business or evening day. And as a last and closing practical detail, this session is recorded and will be uploaded at xapa.org on our website. Feel free to share it. Um, with your colleagues and or people who you think would be inspired by this content to better manage 
human rights across uh, their business decisions. Thank you so much.